The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, Dickheads! This pink laser beam of truth is coming from all over the world to your brain holes. Tonight, I have four special guests who are going to talk to us about Asian science fiction in translation. Personally, as your host, I've read a little bit of science fiction in from both countries, but uh, admittedly, I have more knowledge on, on China, but it's okay. I got two experts on Japanese science fiction, uh, people who work in the field with it. So uh, going around, I'm going to introduce everybody. Um, uh, Tyron Grillo, can you tell us who you are and why you're here? Yeah, I am uh, Tyron, as you said, and uh, thank you very much for having me and all of us. Uh, this is a great pleasure and an honor. Um, so uh, I guess I'm many things. Currently, I am a um, visiting professor at Clark University, where I focus on Japanese uh, popular culture and film and literature. I'm also a, a music critic on the side with a passion for jazz and classical and uh, I translate um, whenever the time allows to do so. And I do Japanese fiction into English. Awesome. Um, is Angus Stewart. Okay. So I'm Angus Stewart. I'm uh, also a podcast host. I'm the host of the Translated Chinese Fiction podcast. Uh, so that's fiction, not science fiction. Um, the podcast's kind of like hook line or slogan or whatever you want to call it is it all eras, all genres, all ideologies? But I do think one of our, well, I say our, it's just me, uh, one of this podcast specialities is sci-fi. Um, and that's basically just because I'm very interested in it. I've read just about, but not quite all that's available in tr English translation. And my, so I did a master's in publishing about a year and a half ago. And for my dissertation, I did uh, I did the publishing of like translated Chinese science fiction, and I was just in the process of looking up its title to remind myself. I can't remember the actual title, but I remember the subtitle, which actually describes what it is. Was a uh, Chinese science fiction's journey to the West. Although um, I've since learned that there are some ways you could problem you could criticize journey to the West as a problematic <laughs> use of the phrase, but who cares? Um, that's what it was. <laughs> Well, I like the double meaning of it. Um, mm. Now, one of the guests you've had and I've heard on your podcast is Nathaniel Isaacson. Nathaniel, why don't you tell us who you are and why I had you here? Uh, yeah, I'm Nathaniel Isaacson. I'm an associate professor at North Carolina State University. I work in uh, modern Chinese literature and cultural studies. Um, and I guess I, I do a lot of translation after I've gotten all the other things that you have to get done as a professor uh, finished, I really enjoy translating, and quite of that has been sci-fi. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, and uh, Nick Mamatas is the last person we're going to introduce. Nick, uh, welcome. Uh, tell everybody who you are and what you do. Uh, I am a writer and editor. For 11 years, I worked for Viz Media, which is a, uh, primarily a manga publisher, but we had a line of science fiction and translation called Hakusudo. Uh Tyron was one of our translators, and uh, um, so after working for 11 years, I now work for Seven Seas Entertainment as a manga editor. Oh, great. So uh, back in the biz, as it were. Um, okay. So uh, I'm going to talk about the roots of um, science fiction in both countries as how it relates to how it kind of got started and what we know about the early days of it. Um, 
But I think that Chinese tradition is much older, especially if you consider that Chinese fantasy and uh, weird fiction is um, rooted centuries ago that that's been doing like the, the probably the two classics of Chinese literature are fantasy novels with uh, the romance of the three kingdoms and journey to the West. Um, Nathaniel Orangus, whoever wants to start first, can you tell us, you know, what are the roots of science fiction in, um, in uh, Chinese culture? Um, I think Nathaniel is the real expert. I'd, jump in and say the number of classics um, that usually gets rattled off is four. And off the top of my head, there's Outlaws of the Marsh, which is pretty grounded in reality. Um, Three Kingdoms, I I don't know that much about it, but I'm pretty sure there's not really too much magic in that Mm. one. And then we've got Journey to the West, totally fantasy. And um, uh, Dream, uh, Dream of the Red Chamber, which is a really good point to hand off to Nathaniel Isaacson, because at the start of the 20th century, there is a sci-fi fanfic reimagining of that classic. Um, so yeah, um, I don't know an awful lot about those early roots. What I do know about the Chinese sci-fi that starts off the 20th century or the turn of the 20th century, I know because I read Nathaniel's book. So <laughs> I defer to him. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I would say that uh, in order to get the book published, I really cut out any of that stuff that um, arguably... Uh, does present us with some of the roots of Chinese science fiction. And there are a lot of those fantastic roots and really important connections there um, between things like Journey to the West or even, um, you know, the narrative styles uh, and a lot, a lot of the elements of uh, things like Romance of the Three Kingdoms or uh, Strange Tales from a Chinese Studio, right? Liao Jaijiri, um, which is a lot of ghost stories. Um, I kind of, I cut that all out of my work um, just to make the project manageable. Uh, and then after having done that, I kind of realized that maybe I could have paid more attention to that stuff. I'd say the real emergence of it is, you know, very late 19th, early 20th century. Um, and when China was faced with imperial incursion from Europe and uh, Japan. Uh, and and to me, the most important thing about science fiction um, in China is, A, that it's a response to imperialism and colonialism. Uh, and um, I would say, B, uh, one of the really neat things about that is that I, I mostly limited that to things that people were calling science fiction. And you have that word in China by 1902. Um, and I think that's like basically a retranslation from Japanese, um, of Kagaku Bungaku, right? Um, but interestingly, you, you kind of have this as a genre category before you have it um, in the United States, right? Uh, but, you know, that uh, doesn't mean the genre wasn't already there in the West. I mean, mostly it's in translation and it, it gets picked up um, and picked up in sequels like Angus was alluding to uh, with New Story of the Stone, which so, is a, a great novel. So, Nathaniel, what I'm wondering there is what, were works like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells getting translated into China? And Yes, absolutely. Is, is that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so some of the pro and the early science fiction before... Hugo Gernsback gave it a name, gave it the scientific fiction. We, we were seeing the, the works of speculative fiction from the West also. And I'm not discounting, I'm not saying the West is the reason. Let me be clear on that. I'm just saying, I was wondering if it was being read there at the time. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a like thorny argument there, right? Because the idea of stimulus response and that China would not have been modern without Western incursion um, I, I think that's been heavily criticized um, and for good reason. But it's also true that, you know, science fiction as it was, was first uh, first available in China in translation with things like you said, you know, Jules Verne. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, and, and I did. I, in some of my research, I read that that uh, that Jules Jules Verne novels were very popular in China. That, w- that once they got translated there, that particularly Jules Jules Verne was very popular. So that's one of the reasons why um, I asked that. But as far as Japan is concerned, um, Japan also has a, a long history of fantastical fiction. I was reading about. Um, a 10th century book called The Tale of the Bamboo Cutter, which I've never read, but I, I, I read the, of its existence, that this is kind of like proto-science fiction because it was about a princess from the moon who mm-hmm. was sent to Earth. Have Nick or Tyron, have either of you read The um, the Tale of the Bamboo Cutter? Because that, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's perhaps with particular regard to Japan where the concept of genre gets a little blurry because I think there is a more gradual transformation from what would be considered hardcore mythology to hardcore science fiction. And Mm -hmm. the line between those, I think, is protracted over time and uh, perhaps fascinatingly so has been often difficult, been difficult to disentangle. Um, But I think uh, the real turning point perhaps and if one was to define a breaking point, it would be World War II, um, because uh, that's when I think the science of science fiction really comes into play more heavily. Um, and of course, there are authors uh, like Oshikawa Shundo, who wrote very much in the Jules Verne vein. Um, but really, after World War II, you have people like Tezuka Osamu, who um, is probably sort of the godfather of contemporary science fiction in Japan. And that's another point of interest, however, because obviously as a manga artist, one would not slot him into the category of pure literature, so to speak. Um, And that's another uh, dynamic, I think, to, you know, keep in mind uh, that he wasn't necessarily among, you know, the high intellectual literati of his time. But obviously, in retrospect, we know that he's worthy of inclusion in whatever ranks one would place him in Japanese literary history. But Certainly the visual component, I think, allowed readers to appreciate the depth of his stories and vice versa, and how those shaped contemporary science fiction in Japan as an explicit and direct reaction to the nuclear anxiety of the war. Right. Well, and I didn't realize that manga, I mean, just because my ignorance, when I started researching for this episode, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that manga was like kind of post-World War II, that it's been mm-hmm. going on that long, that, um, and I, of course... That's just my ignorance, but but um, and one of the authors that you mentioned, I, I did read about his uh, submarine war war novel from nineteen hundred. Yeah, that's from nineteen hundred, and yeah. it's interesting because that's the same exact year that Journey to the Center of the Earth appeared in Japanese as well. Um, mm-hmm. So um, that was sort of a, you know a watershed moment um, in both you know the Western tradition and the Japanese tradition, so to speak. And um, but it's hard to say you know how much of that was influenced, you know, by, by Western speculative fiction at the time and how much was just, uh, again, um, the anxiety of modernism and, you know, the, the sort of, um, I guess, simpatico effect of the industrial revolution on the creative mind. So, so I, I'm wondering how Imperial Japan affected this fiction, because I know this novel from 1900 was about a Russian-Japanese war, um, how yeah, some people uh, think it was sort of prophetically, <laughs> you know, um, five years ahead forecasting, yeah, the Russo-Japanese War. Um, but I think those, again, th- those anxieties um, 
that I think one would normally associate with an imperially minded culture um, were inevitably appearing in, in, in precisely that kind of fiction. So, um, so I think it's more of a historical inevitability than anything else. Right. And did, was um, any of this science fiction from this era getting away with um, metaphor for criticism of the empire? Was that a thing? Or? Um, I actually have no idea because um, that's a, a period I'm very fuzzy about. So I wouldn't be able to speak to that. Um, sure. I, would, I would imagine probably not. Um, there might have been some more underground literary circles, but I'm not yeah. really quite sure. Well, and I think what's happening with modern Chinese science fiction is that readers in the West are trying way too hard to force the idea that these Chinese authors are criticizing their country to the point where sometimes, especially like with um, Vagabonds that came out this last year, like people were trying way too hard to make it look like uh, Hang Jingfang is like criticizing China when she's kind of an idealist, right? Um, but we'll we'll get to modern sci-fi later. And um, <laughs> but uh, Nick, how did you um, get involved in in um, in? And I kind of want to start with Nick and work backwards. How you personally discovered uh, reading Japanese fiction and working with it? Well, like anybody, I was a kid in the eighties and seventies, so I saw a few things here and there, you know, anime and whatnot. Often horribly translated or or cut to pieces and re stitched together with it, new characters and that sort of thing. Uh, but my origin really was looking for a job in publishing. And a friend sent me a listing for biz and I said, oh, are you a fan of anime and manga? And I went, no. Which, which seemed like the wrong thing to say, but in fact was the right thing to say because working in the field, whenever there's any kind of job opening in any of the uh, manga companies working in the U.S., whether it's you know, to be the janitor or to be an accountant, people say, well, I don't know anything about being a janitor or an accountant, but I love manga. And they wanted someone who didn't love manga, but who loved science fiction and could bring the science fiction uh, background into uh, the job. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got the job. Like, you know, but after, of course, 12 years of it, I was uh, being steeped in it. All my coworkers, you know, were, and manga was flying all over the uh, office, of course. I got heavily involved in that as well. Yeah. And, and so coming to it from the perspective of not being a fan, like, how do you think or, – or, was there a moment where you were like, wow, they're doing like really cool and interesting stuff that I hadn't seen before? Or, like how long did that kind of take for you to, for that to say? Uh, about 35 seconds, honestly. The first <laughs> time I got the manuscript, it was, aha, all my misconceptions were based around essentially um, <laughs> almost a parody of Japan's that appeared in Western cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, that's just what Japanese science fiction like. Is. Nope, actually it's not. Japanese science fiction, at least in the past 30, 40 years, is still heavily influenced by hard science fiction. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to a, a Japanese science fiction author, say, who's your favorite? Oh, Arthur C. Clarke is my favorite. Or uh, her short fiction, oh, I love Frederick Brown. And uh, much of my job, especially early on in, trend, in editing these works of science fiction, we're trying to figure out what ob- obscure to us Western story were they referencing. Right, and I had to I had to find like these obscure Frederick Brown stories that I could only find on Google in Spanish, and use my high school friends to figure it out with that in English and go, aha, that's what he means in Japanese. Now I got it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, and, and Arthur C. Clarke comes up a lot with the Chinese science fiction writers as well. Um, he, for- although he's, he's but in the West, he's barely read anymore. Right in the West, generally speaking, what happens is when you die, you go out of print. Yeah, yeah, and uh, other countries have not necessarily Yeah, yeah. Um, 
All right. So, uh, Nathaniel, how did you um, get into Chinese translation and fiction? Because you, you do it all, right? Like, not just science fiction, right? You do. Um, yeah. A long time ago, I thought I would go into Chinese because I was going to learn the language and go into business. Um, and it took a very small taste of that to realize I didn't want to do that at all. Yeah. Um, I love the language. Uh, it's actually, you know, a whole bunch of languages and, enti- and an entire civilization, right? Um, so it was just this fascinating, never-ending deep dive that you could get into. And I, I found that I really love that and I love teaching. Um, the, the dissertation that became a book was a, an attempt to do something that I thought was really manageable. Um, at the time, you know, uh, to the best of our knowledge, there were only but just enough Chinese sci-fi stories that you could make a dissertation out of it. Um, and then it's just completely exploded where we found all these things that were missed. Um, and then the genre, you know, in the contemporary period has just completely exploded. Um, so I, I no longer have, uh, would even dare to say that I have a, a grasp on all of the Chinese sci-fi that's out there. Uh, but I, when I started to go into it, I thought I could be the guy who knew all of it anyway. Well, and it helps that we're talking about just the translated stuff because I know it's the, the, uh, the stuff that's out there is is much deeper than than what we're able to get in English. But um, and, but and Nathaniel too, your your uh, your sci-fi origin involves our man uh, PKD because I I remember because of Angus's podcast you mentioned that you were a dickhead as well. So um, I believe, right? Am I, am I correct? Yeah, as a as a teenager, um, I think another part of getting into Chinese uh, is maybe kind of related to that. That anything that seemed um, you know, a little bit alternative or something growing up in the mid nineties. Uh, and Philip K. Dick was one of those things that I got into, uh, had like a Steve, Stephen King kick went on for a while until I re- realized that it's just the same 800 page novel almost every time. Um, but I, I was into him for a little bit. Uh, yeah. Uh, Philip K. Dick seemed like really out there. And I think similar to what Nick is talking about, you know, you go down downtown, um, and you discover these really wild, uh, you know, Terry Gilliam movies or, or whatever on the shelf at the, at the video store and bring that home. And then you go over to the, the uh, manga shop and you find some kind of comic that just got translated from Japan and you're just really blown away by all that as a kid, right? And so just uh, sort of sampling from whatever I could find. Um, yeah, wandering around downtown Flagstaff, Arizona, where I grew up. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and um, Actually, I think you mentioning PKD to Angus on the podcast was the genesis of this episode because that that was the beginning of <laughs> thinking like, hey, I should I should really bring all these folks together. Um, but Angus, how did you get into Chinese fiction? I mean, you lived in China for a couple of years as well, right? Yeah, if I hadn't lived there, well, who knows? Actually, if I hadn't lived there, I might have still um, gone down the rabbit hole. It's much less likely though. Um, so. I've gone. I've, I think I've told this story in the podcast a few times, so I've got it fairly. Uh, I can I can bang this one out uh, fairly concisely. So, living in China, uh, most of what I wanted to read was almost all of what I wanted to read for most of the time I was there was not Chinese because it was a little bit like, um, you know, you're you're away from home. What movies do you want to watch? The movies that remind you of home. What food for you is a treat? Is it noodles or a pizza? It's going, it's going to be a pizza. Um, so I didn't really fixate on reading Chinese stuff until I'd gone home and was missing China. But the stuff I did read while I was there is three things, uh, three pieces of translated Chinese fiction. One was uh, Diary of a Madman, 
by Lu Xun, which he's an important guy in the history of Chinese sci-fi without being a, a, a sci-fi writer because he was translating um, things like Jules Verne and H.G. Wells into Chinese from Japanese, I think. Um, yeah. yeah, thanks, Daniel. Um, I was pretty sure that was right. So it was that. I read, um, I perhaps regret this, but I read um, a translation of Dream of the Red Chamber. So a, it was an ebook, so I didn't realize it was a doorstopper. And that kind of put me off. But eventually, somewhere down the road, I saw an article about the three-body problem. I think its hype from being uh, on a Obama, President Obama's reading list was starting to take off, and it was starting to get coverage. And the article, it, it talked about the themes and stuff, but what hooked me was the like elevator pitch of the plot that aliens are coming for humanity, and humanity has not months to get ready, but centuries. Um, so humanity has to co- cohere and come up with a generation by generation plan. And I was like, that's such a good premise. And I, I'm not a hardcore sci-fi reader either. Um, the sci-fi I'd read before was just here and there. One Asimov, Asimov novel, a lot of um, Ian Banks, uh, my, my countryman, my dead countryman. Um, so I wouldn't, necessarily be sold on something just because it was Chinese sci-fi but I heard that plot hook and the general sort of geopolitical themes it was like oh I need to read this so I powered through the trilogy pretty fast uh, and the end of uh, Death's End moved me to tears which is weird considering how um, non-emotional most of those books are but it left a huge impact and then upon getting home as I I, um, I, would, I started doing a publishing master's and was like wait here's a niche I could pursue here. I could learn all about Chinese fiction that gets translated into English. And it was particularly interesting for me to look at what's your bog standard Chinese book that gets brought into English versus the three-body problem. Um, Because three-body problem made a massive splash in English, had was, you know, made a huge amount of sales. Um, Whereas I think other Chinese stuff that had been brought into English previously had been had carried some cultural prestige, but never sold very well. Like uh, the example I can throw off the top of my head is Moyan, so or Moyan. So he won the Nobel Prize. He's his writings are sometimes somewhat critical of uh, of the Chinese system, which of course Western publishers and readers love. But he's apparently never sold very well. So a big focus of my dissertation and now my podcast is trying to follow the you know, follow the hook line all all ears, all genres, all ideologies, because all genres really means getting away from the prestigious serious, serious literary fiction and seeing if Western readers would be interesting in reading like Chinese crime books, Chinese sci-fi, Chinese, well, wuxia is a big one actually that I, I'm only just starting to learn about now. Uh, all eras, that one is less interesting for me because I think there are people who are interested in modern China and there's plenty of people who are interested in ancient China it's maybe the pre-communist parts of the 20th century that are the most interesting, unexplored ground there. And all ideologies, because you shouldn't have to pick between propaganda and a dissident. It's important to listen to both of those sides, especially the dissidents. But you're never going to understand China if you think every author and artist and creator is a rebel, because that's not the reality. Yeah, so. no, 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 that's a very important point that we will get to, especially when we talk about vagabonds uh, later, mm. which 
I have read this year. Um, Tyron, what's your uh, origin story as far as getting into this field? Um, yeah, interestingly, my introduction to science fiction uh, had in a strange way something to do with East Asia from the very beginning. Um, so my all-time favorite sci-fi work of literature is David Wingrove's Zhongguo. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, he uh, it was, uh, was published in maybe the 90s in the States, um, but he's a British author, so I think it was originally published in the UK. But the publisher pulled the plug on his last two novels so in the series, so he had to smush volumes eight and nine into one, so fans were always hungry for more. Um, in the past few years, he's rewritten the entire series as a 20-volume um, magnum opus the way he wanted to. So that has always remained a touchstone for me. Um, that was actually in my teens at around the time when I was first getting into East Asian culture in general, both Chinese and Japanese. And so then I um, had a, a really close friend in high school from Tokyo, and he was constantly talking about this PlayStation video game called Parasite Eve. Um, and then uh, came back from break one, one year and said, hey, here's the novel based on, you know, that the video game was based off of. And let me tell you about it. Of course, it was not translated yet. Um, so I became uh, really fascinated by how in-depth the novel was, um, having already played the video game. Um, and so I promised him that I would translate it one day, um, whenever my Japanese abilities ever got to that point. Um, so he gave me his copy and of, the, of the novel, and... Um, in my uh, junior year of Japanese studies, I, I uh, ended up publishing it. Um, I have to bow graciously to my editor um, and also to the author, uh, who, as a practicing pharmacologist, is fluent in English and hand-wrote corrections on my entire manuscript, basically correcting every scientific term that I managed to flub <laughs> in my translation. <laughs> um, including the glossary that he includes in the back of the book, uh, full of scientific terminology. So, um, so it was, you know, a, a huge, you know, steep learning curve for me. I never, you know, studied abroad in Japan and my linguistic skills were purely, you know, on the page. So, um, but it was a really great experience. Um, so yeah, uh, I'll, although I translated a lot of different genres in Japanese fiction, sci-fi has always been uh, my foundation and it's something that I constantly return to. Okay, so let's talk about what um, the the culture, or, or let's talk about how the history of translation of this work in this genre has happened. Um, because for me, my introduction to Chinese fiction was mostly through in college. I had to read, um, had to read. I was excited to read the Romance of the Three Kingdoms and Journey to the West because I had seen a thousand movies based on them between all the Shaw brothers movies and all like the, cause I was a Kung Fu movie dork. And so I had that experience in college when I read the romance of the three kingdoms, I'm like, well, this chapter is like this Shaw brothers movie. And this chapter is like the, Oh my gosh. Um, and then realizing that um, tales from a Chinese studio. I also read that my favorite, one of my favorite uh, Hong Kong films is Chinese ghost story, which is obviously inspired by um, Tales from a Chinese that? Studio, which by the way, could be is straight up bizarro. Um, and I have, when we talk about the bizarro writing community, I always tell people you gotta read Tales from a Chinese Studio because it's like proto bizarro from 
that era. It's just so fucking weird. But at some point, there became um, a modern scene. And what do we know about um, how this community grew? And let's start with China. Either one of you guys jump in. How did this community grow before it got discovered by by translators, like in the 20th century? That's a big question, um, I know. Yeah, I, I think it... Um, I wish I knew the exact years these were happening. I think that it's, it's uh, biannual or so, but a lot of it is through conventions. Um, uh, so I know there were, you know, every couple of years there were conventions, I think especially in Chengdu that were happening. Um, and that's where this really got started. And not until, you know, like uh, after 2005 um, was when that community started to realize that sci-fi in China actually existed. Um, and so I think that was a really common experience that even if you told uh, Chinese folks or people who studied literature in China, I'm working on science fiction, um, you know, before like 2013, even a lot of people would just say, wait, we have science fiction. Um, or if you walk in, you walk into a bookstore in Beijing or Shanghai um, and you'd say, where's the sci-fi section? And you would get led over to the, the fantasy section or the, the wuxia xiaoshua section. Right. Um, and so it, I, I think without fandoms, it really wouldn't have existed. Um, and that's a thing I wish I knew more about. Um, but those started to get going, you know, like I think a little bit after 2005. But Japan had so much more science fiction and manga and so much going on. So I don't think that was less of a thing in Japan. Right. Like there was an active sci fi community through throughout. Am I correct, Nick or Tyron? Yeah. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not really an expert on sort of the prehistory of science fiction, but I know that it was perhaps, you know, taken more seriously as such, um, you know, uh, at an earlier point, you know, compared to China, for example. Yeah, I, I just want to throw this out there. It's kind of a pet theory I have. Um, but I, I like speaking about Tezuka Osamu. Mm. Um, I think that copyright law in Japan is really important. Because you, you could get like the manga or the anime, right? But uh, Mark Steinberg has written about how you could get so many other like kids toys or chocolates or whatever. And just any consumer product possibly related to that character is available in Japan and protected in the same way that Disney protected their stuff. And that doesn't exist in China. So the way right. that um, fandoms interact with, with the products and the way that they make it out into the market is really different. Um, and I think that's another advantage of having that sci-fi foundation in art forms like manga and anime, because the, the sheer age range and demographic range of possible fans is so great. And it allows for that sort of cross-pollination, you know, a fandom to emerge at a very early time. Well, one thing that the Japanese science fiction community has that the Chinese didn't early on is something like Paradon Press that was like fan that started as fan translations. Am I correct? Or Nick, do you know the history of that? Cause I know you, you work with them, haven't you? I, I, I don't necessarily, but I think one thing that's important is how Japanese publishing works mm -hmm. was in my mind, very uh, useful for science fiction in particular, especially given that science fiction, despite novel selling very well is ultimately, I think, a genre that is best served in short fiction and novella-like fiction because it's a mm -hmm. conceptual phase. There is a premise. Mm -hmm. And Japanese publishers almost always publish via magazines as well as books. Mm -hmm. And they cultivate new writers by series of contests and 
once you get in the winner contest, you get published with uh, a story, whether mystery, science fiction, romance, etc., you're sort of in. And they also spent a lot of time, this is true of manga as well, even if you were an inspiring manga that never published anything, you can get a meeting with an editor, starting as a kid. And they'll spend years saying, oh, throw this away, try something else, try something else, as opposed to the Western version of sending stuff in, and maybe you get a rejection, maybe you don't, who knows, and 10 years later, somehow you hit. So there's a lot of cultivation of new writers and of forms of fiction that are very amenable to science fiction. Mm. And I would say that fandom in Japan has a fancy fandom. There are actually there's a big underground of people rewriting manga and remixing uh, traditional characters in different ways, sort of like uh, fan fiction here in the U.S. But I would say uh, my my suspicion is that uh, publishing mainstream came first, then a fandom emerged. And Japanese fandom is very heavily influenced by uh, U.S. fandom, mm. as it stood about 30 years ago. So and I've been invited the, like circons, and I had to explain to my boss, well, what is a circon? Oh, a circon is a serious convention, <laughs> <laughs> which is a term of art not even used by American fandom anymore, other people who are younger than me. I'm like the youngest person who what the word circon means in the United States, except for now all of you, right? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a, a really excellent point about publishing. Sorry, I just want to add. Go ahead. Um, I, uh, what, for example, one of the sci-fi authors that I've translated more recently, I, I had lunch with him um, in Osaka a few years ago, and um, I was asking him, you know, how did you ever get published? Because his stories are, are you know, rather bizarre, for lack of a better term, but, you know, uh, wonderfully so. Um, and he was uh, just telling me how easy it is, you know, compared to his understanding of Western literary process, he had to get published. Because basically, he had exactly the same experience as Nick described. He, he would just sort of, um, you know, meet with an editor, and then they, they hit it off, and then he would just keep sending the stuff until the editor said, oh, yeah, I'll take this one, you know, mm. and, instead of just being totally brushed off, you know, as a, as a wannabe. Um, and um, what's interesting, though, is that the, even though there's a lot of editorial quality control, um, there's, I think, a certain freedom of ideas uh, that I find very exciting in Japanese science fiction um, because there seems to be uh, a marked lack of a filter on content. Um, there's certainly a lot of... Uh, Chinese, uh, yeah, I would um, say Chinese science fiction, too. Yeah, so I think that that creates, you know, it's sort of a blessing and the curse. You, know, you, you can get a lot of crap out there, but you can also get some pretty brilliant ideas uh, squeezing through the ringer. And if you're lucky enough to encounter them, then you know, it works out well for both parties. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things I found when I, like, when um, Kurdan sent me Speculative Japan, like, just, like, every story that I read, I was like, okay, this is, like, nothing I would read otherwise. Um, well, some of them are... are I, I agree, Nick. There are some things that play off um, tropes that we've seen in other stories, but they always have that edge that it comes. It's coming from a different culture. It means it, yeah. So I mean, uh, one reason I published a lot of hard science fiction in Hikasuru was I one I loved hard science fiction, but two I hate hard science fiction because mm-hmm. in the U.S. especially hard science fiction is essentially propaganda for the Libertarian Party. <laughs> <laughs> And a lot of time. Economics is just like physics. It's just the science. And of course, it's going to be libertarian economics. And then uh, in, in Japan, of course, it's, it's a Japanese nationalism instead. This right. is the uh, driving political theme of uh, hard SF. Mm. And so, yeah, the edge is always from different cultures, different societies. Now, I'm not, I wasn't trying to say that Japanese SF just apes at US SF. Yeah. But the influences are heavily there, and they aren't the influences that you would see in contemporary American SF. 
All right. So Angus, you were talking about um, uh, censorship in an early Chinese sci-fi. Did you want to expand on that? Uh, yeah. So we were. You guys were saying all the reasons why the Japanese genre fiction and sci-fi, I guess, really has really taken off, and it probably bears mentioning why it took why it was so late into the twentieth century that Chinese sci-fi kind of bounced back. So it's so it's not it's not just censorship. It's political upheaval in in general, and then maybe more in the communist era, state control of culture has ba- basically stopped stopped what has become of Chinese sci-fi happening earlier. So um, I so we we mentioned earlier that like at the start of the twentieth century, you had this kind of embryonic Chinese sci-fi um, that writers were creating in in reaction to basically yeah Western imperialism and an urge to uh, modernize perhaps sometimes by copy it, just outright copying the science fiction coming in, perhaps by lending it some Chinese characteristics, in, in quotes. Uh, and then I, I, I didn't know exactly why there was a dry spell after that into like the 20s and 30s. Uh, I learned recently from Nathaniel's book that basically other concerns kind of took over. Um, the writers who took off at the, the kind of end of the Qing Dynasty, start of the Republican era, the May 4th movement writers, their focus moved away from science fiction onto just science, really, or uh, realism as a literary style. And also within the country, um, uh, I guess they entered a, a warlord era where the real problem was inner turmoil rather than attacks from outside, from what I understand. So there's one really interesting Chinese sci-fi novel from the 30s, Cat Country, but between like the end of the Qing Dynasty to the Communist Revolution... It's nothing, and that's not a result of censorship. That's just kind of cultural tides. But then after the revolution, so what, like in the into the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, the Mao era, uh, from what I've learned, not because I've read or studied hardcore, but I've, what I've learned on my sort of journey is that there was sort of Soviet-style sci-fi, but it was just there to either propagandize about the new chi- the new China or to teach kids some stuff about space or science. So not really what we would think of as literary science fiction. Uh, after the death of Mao, China went into its reform and opening era, where the leader, the you know, as we know, the Communist Party stayed in charge, but they tried op- relaxing uh, the culture and the economy and so on. Um, but there was a moment, I don't know the exact year, um, Nathaniel might know, where things sort of culturally took a backwards turn the communist leaders decided that they weren't happy with what they saw as, I don't know, Western decadence or something. So a there was a thing called the anti-spiritual pollution movement. I think just before that, a story had come out. It was called something like Little Smarty or Little Know-It-All Travels the Universe. <laughs> uh, yeah, Nathaniel will correct me. Yeah, Yonglia. Yeah, Yonglia, yeah. Um, and I think that was an that was a sign of possible better things to come. But then the uh, government said, no, too much Western culture, sci-fi is a Western genre, away with it. So it kind of got pushed underground again, and I guess bubbled back to the surface, I think in around the 90s. And that resurgence ended up giving us three-body problem. And so Liu Cixin and his his, um, sort of cohort of writers, and now we have a younger cohort reaching us. So yeah, that's so long story short there's a reason why there's been a lag China's lag behind Japan. If we're just looking at those two countries. 
Well, and Japan also had a had an era that uh, that I read about where they called it the wintry age for science fiction, <laughs> where there was less being published. So yeah. it, it kind of happened that same way in both countries. But um, I want to eventually get into where we just talk about titles and we just talk about things that people should look for. Uh, but before we do that, we have to talk about the two books that kind of broke the dam for each culture. And uh, we're really lucky to have somebody who worked on one of the one of those books for the Japanese, which um, we'll get to. We obviously free body problems, one for China, but the one for Japan that I think really broke it through to the mainstream is um, all you need is kill because uh, it got, you know, Tom Cruise in in, uh, in film. And uh, <laughs> but I think that that book is is crucial. Am I correct? It, it just seems to me that. Like that is as mainstream of penetration as Japanese science fiction has had in the West. Um, can you tell us, Nick, about All You Need Is Kill and how you got involved with that book and what it is? Um, although I would still say I, I agree with Tyron that manga is still more important than prose fiction. Sure. And we're talking about Japanese science fiction being penetrating in the West. Mm. You know, Pokemon is far more mainstream and far more vital and is a kind of science fiction, even though it's for children. Yeah. And uh, weird ecology, you know, uh, and uh, that sort of thing. So, but yeah, as far as pro science fiction goes, I would definitely say Orient is Kill is probably second to Japan Sinks, which mm-hmm. has been around for, for many decades. Uh, and of course, it's huge, huge in Japan too, and re- remains like, uh, like, a, like, a classic of, uh, mm-hmm. like a classic of science fiction. But All You Need Is Kill was one of the first novels we did at Viz uh, for the Hyper Circle line. Um, it was the first, it was going to be the fourth. I, and we said, well, why, 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 this should be the first. <laughs> and uh, at the time, there was an idea that uh, Viz, you know, not to tell tells a school, Viz was going to do a lot of movies, and they would make a lot of, and they even had a producer that they brought from DreamWorks to be an employee of Viz to produce movies, and they had asked me, well, if the books you're going to be doing, do you have any good ideas for movies? I said, oh, ideas for good movies? I said, no, 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 good ideas for movies. It's different than ideas for good movies. <laughs> so that was the first thing I learned about publishing. <laughs> And so I, I pitched All You Need Is Kill. Um, the most widely reproduced sentence I've ever written in my life is Groundhog Day meets Starship Troopers. That was, that was my pitch to them. That became the press release. And it was, we did in every newspaper in the country for three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those who don't know, All You Need Is Kill is about, is essentially takes the form of a shonen manga. And that it's about a, ki- a kid, a young guy who is a loser and gets blasted and killed. But he comes back and gets stronger every time. He learns a few things, has a rival makes friends with a rival, there's a bigger enemy. So it's, it, it is a classic shonen manga, battle manga style story. And uh, it, also has, it also feels like a video game where you die and you start over again, you get better at the video game every time. So it, it, it uh, had three things going for it. It had reminiscent of classic science fiction like Heinlein, uh, one of Heinlein's juveniles. It felt like a manga, and we had, of course, had said, said 20 years of kids reading manga, and it felt like a video game, and everyone plays video games. So that really took off. And uh, we found a guy to write a script. The script sold for millions of dollars, which is almost impossible. Almost nobody buys scripts on spec anymore. This is bought on spec. Then Tom Cruise got a hand hold of it and said, oh, we got to do this movie. So they threw the script away. <laughs> because the, the film's about a 18-year-old Japanese guy, not a 50-year-old American man. And many, many revisions later, Oil oh, This Kill came out and did pretty well. It, didn't, it was never number one. It was number three when it uh, premiered at, at the box office. But 
it held up for, through word of mouth. And we had a mass market edition of All You Need Is Kill under the, under the title Edge of Tomorrow. And it was an IMAX. It was give, given away at IMAX theaters. And is some, and when I, by the time I left, it was in its ninth or tenth printing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was a very powerful uh, moment for Japanese SF. Although, of course, the version people are most familiar with is barely Japanese at all. Mm-hmm. There was even versions of, well, we have a Japanese scientist. No, get rid of him. No, no, we're going to have the American <laughs> scientist. <laughs> I, the Japanese bit that shows up are, are two things, one of which I kind of helped with. In the Japanese version, the female lead is called the bitch of the battlefield. We change it to full metal bitch. And then in the film... Someone says, hey, it's the full metal, and he gets knocked out before they say this. That was like my <laughs> one thing that I, that I was able to stick through with the video variations on the PR on screen. And at one point, they were all in battle armor, which is, of course, a very common Japanese trope and also a very common American trope. And uh, it starts talking to me in Japanese as that malfunctions, and it's sort of a cheery, anime-esque voice actor voice. So, yeah, Japanese made it big, except once we got rid of all the Japanese stuff. But uh, So that was a problem. But it did help. <laughs> get the book out there and get attention. Absolutely, sure. You know, any movie, even if it's totally whitewashed, as they say, and it was wrongly whitewashed, I agree, is nonetheless a commercial that's twenty that's two hours long that people paid to see for the book. Right. And if you work in advertising, oh, a long commercial and people pay to watch it? Great. So on some <laughs> level, that was fantastic. Uh, Tyron, um, did you read the book in, that book in Japanese? Or you, were you familiar with it before... It became a actually. Um, I I actually wasn't familiar with that novel before the film came out, um, but I did look at it in Japanese. Um, you know, around right. the time that the film came yeah, out. Amazingly, yeah. it wasn't huge in Japan, and Sakurazaki no. is not a huge writer in Japan. He's not yeah. prolific enough to be huge there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once you're once you're published in Japan, you're expected to go on the uh, treadwheel, the treadmill of publishing constantly. So if you're yeah. writing hard science fiction novels, and some newspaper says, "Oh, will you write a, uh, an essay for us about the importance of Valentine's Day?" You're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna say no afterward. Mm-hmm. And Sucker's like, oh, I'm gonna say no. Maybe I'll do a sequel. Maybe not. And when he got a wheelbarrow full of Hollywood money, he definitely uh, realized he could take it easy, unlike many Japanese authors. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So it was kind of a mid-list book. It was actually, kind of a light novel. It was illustrated. Mm-hmm. It had a relatively simple kanji. Mm-hmm. So it was designed almost like a, what we call a young adult novel. Mm-hmm. And uh, wasn't huge until. It came, became huge in America, and then it got huge there too. And they had a manga adaptation, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. That was done by Top Mangaka, and then it re- has become a classic. Mm. Yeah, and I, I do think that that because um, I know for for um, it was weird. I, I had just in my tiny little experiences that I had a uh, on my blog. I had a review of Speculative Japan, and the week after. Um, uh, Edge of Tomorrow came out like for some weird reason. I had like 200 extra hits on my <laughs> on my blog just of the speculative Japan review, and I was like, it was this weird thing that I've never forgotten. Like how, and it's not even that detailed of a review, right? So, so I was like, it it taught me something about like how the, the penetration of these things, and I think with Three Body Problem, it was definitely Obama. Uh, <laughs> like blurbing it, which was bizarre. And people have asked me, like, why did Obama blurb this? Like, I can read his mind or something. But, um, you know, and because I'm a science fiction guy, but my only thought was this idea that, and Angus, you you mentioned this with Three-Body Problem, is part of the, the idea of Three-Body Problem is, like, we have this transformational change we have to make happen and we have to think long term about it. 
I think for a politician, that was that was very interesting. That's the very sunshine and daisies uh, reading of why Obama might be interested in it. Because <laughs> I think I didn't mention is it's really dark and it's about a confrontation of two incompatible uh, cultures. Or the I, I mean, not to spoil things too much, but the, there's a sort of a the the idea of the, at least the second book in the trilogy is dark that real politic. So yeah. everyone has to kill each other is baked into the universe itself. And we're in an era, an era where um, China is, you know, if you're if you're doom and gloom sort of person, then you might think we're heading for another Cold War, in which case Free Body Problem is a great book to read. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, I could go more of, into that. There's one of those things about American science fiction publishing is that you see blurbs where two books are combined with each other and you know they actually have nothing to do with the book itself with three body problem that was when it got compared to dune and independence day which you know it's the best of the worst yeah it has more to do with um stanislaw lens his master's voice or asmos the gods themselves but that's not going to sell copies of books so we'll we'll uh we'll try to make you think of the white house getting blown up in independence day and so it was, it was weird to me as somebody who I read it very early on when it got published. Cause I was like, Oh neat Chinese sci-fi. I'm going to read this. And um, when it kind of blew up, it was weird to me because I was like, man, this is hard sci-fi. Like really it's not a very commercial thing. So it was very surprising to me when it took off um, for Nathaniel. How did you, as somebody who followed all this, what was it like watching that book kind of blow up? Um, I'm, I'm kind of strange and I've kind of been rewatching that, uh, retroactively. Um, you know, I think a lot of, I, I would reiterate what Angus pointed out that it seems that this is sort of a geopolitical thing going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and for someone who's, you know, been back and forth, uh, between the United States and China for the last 20 years, it seemed like we had to become aware of this, um, and aware of the, you know, the rise of China and on the kind of, uh, threatening end of it, you know, the Thucydides trap of, you know, two great powers that will inevitably uh, end up at war with one another um, is a theme in the book and a theme in the way that people in both China and the U.S. talk about the relationship between those two countries. Um, you know, I, I think there's like, as far as get, getting popular in the United States, there's this weird connection to woke culture too, right? Um, I don't know how much you guys spend on here talking about sad puppies and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um we but have, I kind of, for sure. I, I kind of wonder how much Liu Cixin winning was just a big fuck you um, to the incels, right? And it, I, I mean, Angus has talked about how dark the novel is. Um, I would say it's social Darwinist and maybe kind of fascist. Liu yeah, Cixin no. is—he's not my favorite. Um, and you know, Angus also talks about how it sort of lacks an emotional core, um, and so. You Although know, I stand by that at the end, it will it will break your heart. But yeah, yeah, um, and I mean, he's really fascinating. It's hard for me to like get get my head around exactly what it is that I'm not quite connecting with Liu Cixin on, because um, it's an amoral universe too, and I really love I love writing that's about an amoral universe. Um, like all my you know top just fiction writers in general, I would say fit in that category. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, I think it has something to do with. American fan cultures latching onto it, maybe just because it was it was something else. All right, so let's get into titles and and stop talking about generalizations of of the scene in the community and get into like. No, let's not. Let's talk about Free Body Problem a little bit more. 
because I've got some opinions. Okay. All right. No, give your opinion then on three-body problem. Well, I am convinced that uh, Obama's annual lists are partly contrived by publicists. What? Impossible. <laughs> no. <laughs> and publishing publicists, and uh, Obama has the kind of a geek chic to him, and he's talked about the area where he likes Star Trek and that kind of thing. And I am almost certain that McMillan, with its immense power as one of the big five <laughs> publishers, uh, got that on that list. Not to say they didn't read it, but I'm just saying it got on that list due to some influences. And I also think it's very helpful um, in two grounds. One, my, my speech work published in Japanese science fiction, one thing I ran into a lot, which was a huge problem, was that people would sample. They'd say, oh, I, Japanese science fiction, that's interesting. Great. I, I, I'll buy one of these books. And they did, and they read it, and they enjoyed it, and that was it. And now I've read Japanese science fiction. I'll go back to reading whatever I want. And so we've had <laughs> right. a few. So, in, 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 so we had a couple hits and a, and a bunch of... Things that didn't make as much money, let's put it that way, or some of them made less money or no money. And that can be fatal. Uh, and I think that Three Body Problem gained from being the Chinese scientific that people are going to read. And I met, I, for until recently, was working at a bookstore and it was still selling huge numbers uh, at the store. People who did not only buy science fiction bought Three Body Problem. So it was that sort of crossover. But the uh, sequels and the related books, you know, much less, which is not atypical, usually. Book number one sells this, and book number two sells 20% less, and 20% less going downward. But for three-body problem, at least locally, we would sell a few hundred copies of that and maybe 40 of book two and uh, 20 of book three, which is a very big uh, uh, you know, collapse of sales, which tells me that people are buying it for almost sort of semi-woke reasons. They want to they be cosmopolitan and international, but not that so, so it's become the one book. And why would it become the one book? I think, despite my personal loathing of them, the footnotes were a great help to American readers. And when I was editing Japanese stuff, I always struggled against the footnote. I couldn't stand the footnote. I would do tons of rewriting to make sure that they wouldn't have to have a footnote. And this is always a, a big issue inside translating Japanese stuff. I remember reading stuff from other publishers that even have long footnotes about sensei which is the word we all kind of know, but it has different connotations. And, you know, you would call the guy who cut your meat at the deli sensei to do a good job at it. Or any, any journalist would be a sensei because they're kind of like a smart, hip guy. So it doesn't just mean teacher or martial arts instructor or that sort of thing. But you don't need to know that in a footnote for one sentence. It was my point of view. But uh, Tor with Three uh, Bottom Homes said, yes, we're going to tell you what the, what the Cultural Revolution is. So they assumed a very, <laughs> a very kind of... Uh, casual audience for things like world history or news or how physics work and it's it seems weird but that, that's helped people who aren't really, uh who don't read, read a lot of books read that book i personally am not anti-footnotes in in there and um i sometimes especially with the chinese ones don't need them a lot of times mm-hmm. because i've read a lot of chinese fiction and um you know wrote a poor attempt at a wuxia novel um <laughs> <laughs> The, hey, it got published, but um, <laughs> but the point is, is that uh, I don't need them a lot of times, but I appreciate them. I sometimes ignore them, but you know, I, I'm not against those. But I understand why you did what you did, Nick, and why you work around them because I can see where they're off-putting to some people. But just mm-hmm. I will say, in this case, it was a, it was a, it was an inspired idea. I think it really helped. Yeah, I think you don't read a lot of science fiction. You don't know a lot about China to get through the book. I think and when I had sorry, sorry, I'm being rude, but um, I think if we're talking about the footnoting by Tor, 
in the three body books i think i grew up well grilled is a strong word but i think i questioned ken leo about how he does footnotes in his translations of stuff um because he's the guy writing them although uh, what i don't know is whether he's asked to write one or whether he wrote more and tor cut them out but um if you go through the three body books there are footnotes but they're not in excess it's not like it's an academic book and i think just in general he's he's an amazing example of a chinese to english translator as someone who's able to double up as a like an editor or someone who has skill as a writer who doesn't just machine translate stuff and who knows how to handle the sort of cultural exchange putting himself in the feet of the different readers and whatnot and just in general as like a facilitator of cultural exchange ken leo's done an amazing job and it, it, it might we might get a chance to talk about it on the show but he's one of the key players in how three body ended up in english uh, he's not he's not the person who instigated it but yeah the whole the whole business of translating in the broader sense culturally um i think as well as giving credit to tor ken leo deserves a lot of credit because he's Absolutely. a very, very uh, proactive proactive translator and a smart one too yeah, Ken Liu, uh, a flag bearer, really, for Chinese sci-fi. Like for sure. I published a story by Ken in uh, one of our Japanese anthologies called The Future of Japanese, and it, it won the Hugo Award. Oh, sweet. Uh, it was called Mono no Aware, and uh, we had some negative feedback from some people who are not Japanese, saying, this book is called The Future of Japanese, and the first story is Ken Liu's Mono no Aware, which has one Japanese person in it, and he gets killed. He kills himself to save a bunch of white people after the world ends. Mm-hmm. How, how dare you do this in Japan this was a huge story that people loved mm-hmm. I, I remember my boss coming to me saying is, this Ken, is Ken married to a Japanese woman how does he know so much about Japan how does, how does he know Japanese so much and when it got translated back in the, into Japanese people loved that story and were thrilled about it and I even asked I asked the author Enjo Cho what, what, what did you think that uh, Ken Liu killed everybody in Japan then he killed the last Japanese guy too he said oh we do that all the time <laughs> in Japanese country, we're always killing Japan, every Japanese person in Japan. So it felt very Japanese to them. So he absolutely uh, an incredible ability uh, to navigate different cultures. Mm. Not just yeah. Chinese the, culture, but also Japanese culture. A thing that really cemented that for me, and that he's, um, he's good at looking at the bigger picture, um, not just China, but also China's neighbors, is um, in his translation of Waste Tide by Chen Xiaofan which has loan words aplenty as well as footnotes, so words from other languages into English preserved, and I think they're in italics in Waste Tide. But it's not just Mandarin Chinese words. There's So there's Mandarin Chinese, there's Cantonese, there's the local Chaoxianhua, uh, which there is another word for. But Shanto. the local... Yes, yeah. that one. Yeah, um, Shanto dialect. Um, there are Japanese words... There might be some other ones too, but he's yeah. It makes it doesn't surprise me at all that he was in very apt at handling a story set in Japan because yeah, he's he's very accessible. I, I, mm. I, the the uh, English version of Waste Tide I think is interesting because all those Chinese terms that are technically dialect, mm. I don't I don't read them as dialect when I'm reading in Chinese, right? Because I only speak Mandarin, so I read those as Mandarin terms, right? Maybe words that I don't know, and there are a lot of those. Um, and so it it pops out more saliently in the English version, actually. Mm-hmm. Let's get into short stories a little bit because short stories are very important in in both countries. Going starting with Tyron and and working our way back, um, 
short story, particularly short story writers, authors that really just kick ass in um, short story form from Japan? Um, I'm actually far more familiar with novelists. Um, oh. but, but I will say, though, that um, my, my current favorite Japanese sci-fi author is uh, Kitano Yusaku. Um, I translated and published his novel, Mr. Turtle, with Kurodahan a few years back. Um, but one thing that, that he's been doing as of late is something that he calls micro-novels. And uh, these are basically, you know, tweet-long stories. Um, and I've, uh, I've published a few of them. Uh, well, I say published, but I've, I've, I've had some of my translations of those appear online um, in uh, sfintranslation.com. Um, and I'm planning on hopefully doing all of them someday. Um, but they are being published serially in Japan in you know hard copies. Um, but they're really fun though, and um, I'd, I'd say they are I think a hundred hundred Japanese characters each uh, around there. Um, but they they really tell a lot in you know in, in very few words. And I've seen a lot of people do that kind of thing, but I think his is the most successful in Japanese anyway. So I really enjoy them. And um, Tyron, what kinds of um... Is there a style that's most popular of science fiction, hard sci-fi, cyberpunk, whatever in Japan? That, or is it kind of all over the place? I don't know. I think it's been all over. I mean, Nick can probably uh, speak very well to that as well. But I would say that, um, interestingly enough, I think Philip K. Dick has been a huge influence on authors that are probably in sort of the upper echelon of, you know. So, for example, one of my all-time favorite Japanese sci-fi authors is um, Kambayashi Chohei, um, whose Yuki Kaze has been published in Pakosoru. Um, my, my favorite novels of him have not, you know, uh, seen an English publisher, probably never will because they're just so long. But um, my favorite of his is called Hadai no Shita, which means under the skin. And it is uh, a trilogy, or, or the, the third book in a trilogy called Mars Third Sector, and it's about a future in which um, humanity, after a you know, nuclear holocaust, has gone to Mars and farmed underground to live there. And they send these um, human uh, uh, kind of uh, sentries up on the surface with android escorts uh, to um, patrol um, you know, the surface of the planet. And uh, in the beginning of the novel, one of the um, androids is on a standard tactical mission, decides to get out of the way of an oncoming bullet uh, thereby killing his human uh, comrade who he was supposed to protect. And so this sets up a whole um, you know, series of events in which uh, Android's self-protective mechanisms has become an inevitability because if you're going to program Android's to be sentient fully, then of course they're going to preserve themselves at the cost of all others. Um, and the author has you know, explicitly stated, you know, I got this from PKD and this is like totally you know, uh, my, my inspiration, my foundation. Um, and you see those themes appear in a lot of his works um, as well. And I think that sort of had a ripple effect, you know, among authors of his generation. But again, he I really think it's all of that. He does not care about Asimov's three laws. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's critiquing it, too. He's critiquing it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Dick and Asimov are kind of at opposite ends of American science between you know, the 70s, where oh, we have to be rationalistic and post-religious. And say, oh, no, we don't. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, thing. Well, sticking with Japan, and then we'll dive into um, to China. But um, Nick, um, who are the authors that you think are the high water mark, whether it's short story or novels? I, we don't have to focus just on short stories, but you know, one reason why I almost never even about the podcast is I'm always objecting to the premise of a question. So here I go again. I'm objecting to the premise of your question. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> because, uh, 
<laughs> a, a not insignificant number of Japanese novels are several Japanese short stories stapled together. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right, the, the fix-up, as they were called in the U.S., is very common, partially because we were talking about where a lot of stuff happens in magazines first, and then they become books, which is what used to happen in the U.S. in the olden days. So one person I would like is uh, Horishi Yamamoto. We did two books of his back at mm-hmm. Akasuru, both of which were novels, but if you read them, they're not novels. One of which is called The Stories of Ibis, which is about a guy in the future who's kind of human. He gets kidnapped by this android who uh, has a special message for him. And the message is, amazingly enough, suggested to him uh, via her reading him you know, seven short stories. Mm. That, that, that you know, happened to write in years past. <laughs> and uh, the second book we did of his was called MM9, Monster of Magnitude 9. It's where uh, kaiju and other monsters uh, that are kind of smaller than kaiju are treated like the weather. Oh, but it's, it's monster weather out there. It's an MM8. It's an MM7. And a bunch of scientists are uh, trying to thwart these monsters. It's, it's also reminiscent of Ultraman without actually having the Ultraman character. So without the big fight with a robot between, uh, between a robot and Kaiju, they're trying to work out scientifically how to, to thwart these monsters. And of course, every chapter is a different monster, and of course, every chapter is a different short story that previously appeared with some flavor text. And many of the books that we did were uh, collections of, of sorts. And one great book we did, one of the last great books we did, was Suspian. And that, too, was three novellas in a row. Mm-hmm. So I would say that the, the, why we shouldn't make the distinction, that, and you said, oh, don't make a distinction, was we don't need to because they don't, mm-hmm. meaning that many authors in Japan will, will write a short treatment and then expand it on another story and then remix them or just even order them into a novel. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the Japanese science fiction's notion of a novel is very uh, loose compared to an American notion of a novel. Even also, I was mentioning Yukikaze, the first Yukikaze book is seven, story, is seven stories. Mm-hmm. The second Yukikaze book, Good Luck to Yukikaze, is a novel, that, as we would understand mm-hmm. it. It was written all at once about uh, one stream of events. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. so okay. if you want to find a good Japanese short story collection, just buy any novel. Yeah. It's going to be a short story collection. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mentioned, too, um, that there was a, um, actually a brief trend of toilet paper novels that were printed mm-hmm. on rolls of toilet paper and... Um, <laughs> Uh, Suzuki Koji of Ring fame uh, had a novel published on, on a toilet paper roll. Um, oh, there it is. Yes. Oh. I used to have that exact same one and I sold it to, uh, yeah, Drop, it's called. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and of course, subway novels are also a uh, um, pretty big thing. You know, pe- people will publish, uh, publish stories serially uh, in subway advertising cards you know, on the train and then those will be published later. So. Well, I think there's a tradition of that in science fiction here, too, because a lot the fix-up novel was a, a much bigger thing in the mm. 30s through 50s, really. I think it was the 60s where that kind of practice, you know, kind of fell away. But, I mean, even when since we've been doing the Dickheads podcast, like a lot of the, you know, early PKD were story, sometimes three stories stitched together and, you know, that where he mm. created framing devices. You know, so he did that, too. Um, particularly, um, penultimate truth for exa- is a great example of one that that kind of worked, and then uh, um, the unteleported man uh, PKD is one that didn't work, um, where he <laughs> added to it, but so much. Um, but you know, what happened with magazines um, declined in the U.S. Yeah, and they've not declined in Japan, mm-hmm. partially because commuter culture, partially because. Uh, the language is very context-dependent and lends itself to uh, short, denser pages, essentially. 
where you can get a lot more cognitive information out of a short story in Japanese than in mm-hmm. the or than in, in English. And so that process is continuing in Japan for a variety of material, economic, and uh, mm-hmm. socio-cognitive reasons. Didn't that happen with the Baroque cycle, though? I mean, like I think Quicksilver was originally three shorter novels, yeah, right? Yeah. And then it just got marketed as the tome, you know, so people would exactly. have to carry it around. Yeah, we we see it occasionally <laughs> here, but not, not as a not not nearly as common. But yeah, that's that's sort of an anomaly, I guess. <laughs> so with Chinese science fiction, uh, with the, the I know the distinction between science fiction, horror, fantasy is is a lot thinner. So uh, Han Song is a great example of that because his um, his primer was published by a horror publisher uh, here, and that's kind of and his stories are very surreal. Uh, but I think that that surreal nature is something that sometimes I think just reading a book from another culture that you don't understand is going to make it feel a little bit more surreal. For example, um, uh, Folding Beijing was, for example, it's an award-winning short story that was in Invisible Planets. And I actually kind of saw this as more kind of PKD-ish. I thought it was very... I, I didn't see it as, as surreal or fantastical. And I've seen it described as a surreal story a couple times by American reviewers. And I don't see it that way, but I think sometimes that just like, if you have no context for China and you're reading something like this, that maybe it comes off like that. But yeah, if you think they're all rice farmers, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so um Nathaniel, starting with Nathaniel and then going to Angus, who are who are some of the writers that you feel are the upper echelon, the ones that people cannot miss? Um, I, I guess since Han Song is already getting plugged, I'm going to skip over him. Uh, but I, I obviously really stand him, right? Um, I do as much translation <laughs> of his stuff as I can. Yeah. Uh, the other person who I sort of had discounted previously and then after COVID I really came to love and my students love is Xia Jia. Um, and her story, Tong Tong Summer, about the, the little girl who interacts with her grandparents um, through this sort of internet prosthesis cyborg creature, right? Um, and I, I didn't like that very much the first time around. And then rereading it after we've already been put in, we've now been put into this world where that's our daily existence. Mm. I thought it was much more poignant. Um, and for having students read it, it was just way too on the nose. Um, and so I, I think uh, Xia Jia is like, it wouldn't, I don't think she would mind if I said she's a very feminine author and maybe the kind of person that I would sort of discount sometimes because I love Han Song where anything goes wrong and people just start eating and fucking each other. And that's <laughs> like, that's my cup of tea, right? And Xia He's not Jia exaggerating. Is, <laughs> yeah. It's true. All of his yeah. Um, Xia Jia is the opposite of that, right? It's really tender, really interest, um, really interesting in a different way. These um, like contemplative pieces about the nature of you know human intelligence and artificial intelligence, um, and I kind of miss her, and I think that other people you know might really actually enjoy that. The other guy I'd like to plug, or person I'd like to plug, is Ji Dawei, um, who's a Taiwanese author, and they have uh, a, a novella coming out called Membrane. Uh, with Columbia University Press. And Ji Dawei writes a lot of stuff that um, deals with uh, gender issues and queerness. Um, and is very Philip K. Dickian with like lots of implanted memories um, and people grown in test tubes. And this the main character in Membrane is named Momo. Um, and it's sort of a reference to the Momotaro, right? The peach boy who, who's born out of the peach. 
Um, and also to the, the Chinese word for membrane, because uh, we find out that this character Momo has basically been grown in a test tube and given these memories. And so you don't really know where they come from or how they, they came to be. Um, but Ji Dawei is really cool and, and very different. Um, and I would say really different from the mainland China stuff because it deals with gender in a way that I don't think you can get away with, or at least I haven't seen in the mainland China authors. Um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't think about uh, nearby countries that were publishing in kind of the same languages and stuff. That's um, that's interesting. Now, yeah, with Han Song, it, it's funny. Um, uh, he has like a story for every mode of transportation that you could be trapped in um, as well. <laughs> like, and the story with the subway train with the, the people trapped in the never ending looping subway train um, was one that was particularly powerful to me of the collection that I read. And then I realized that was a, that trapped in transportation theme is something that, um, that uh, I think we'll, we'll, um, see much more of when we read more Han Sung. Is he one of the more rebel? He's one of the more rebellious authors, right? From this. this- um, I, I think he actually really wonderfully illustrates what Angus is talking about um, in terms of the, this like problematic binary between dissident and nationalist. Mm-hmm. He, you can he be both. Works, yeah. Mm-hmm. He works for the Xinhua news agency, right? He writes propaganda by day. Um, it, it would be like Sean Hannity cranking out stuff like that at night, right? Or maybe not Hannity because he's not, I mean, he's not insane like Hannity, but he's producing state <laughs> propaganda. He's insane yeah? different from... from- um, and he's absolutely a Chinese nationalist, um, mm. but, but in a, a very critical way, right? In a way that's critical of technology. Um, and so it's really hard to pin him down because he brings out all these really dark sides of China's modernization. Um, but he he absolutely is in favor of uh, he's not a dissident. Definitely not a dissident. Well, right. And, and, and waste tide is the same thing. Like um, it's a very politically sharp novel, I think, but um, I don't think that it's like a, a wagging a finger at, at, at the country so much as the role that China has become part of the electronics dumping ground of the world is, is yeah. what waste tide is dealing with. Um, I loved Waste Tide. I thought this book was incredible. Um, it, and it has Japanese flavor because it has giant mecha suits and it has like things like that going on. But, um, but man, this one just kicked, I just read it a couple months ago and it's definitely one of my top reads of the year. Um, I thought it was incredible. Is there anything I'm missing? Not reading it in the original language is what I'm wondering. Um, and in, so I was mentioning before about key players and the bringing of, uh, you know, Leo Tsushin and everything that got bundled afterwards to English. I don't remember her name, but the editor at Tor is quite important. She's a woman. And I think Leo Tsushin grumbled about her um, calling her the feminist editor at um, Tor. And so a difference in a three in three body and English three body, which is not, I think this is not so exceptional for translation from Chinese to English is the way women are referred less references to women, things like referring to them as very cute or, you know, that are irrelevant to the actual description that's gone. And Chen Fan has actually talked quite openly about how he thinks uh, the English version of waste tide is improved in some ways because it, the editor took him and I well, took the novel to task 
on some of the way it treated or depicted Mimi, the main character, who's a young and very vulnerable girl. Um, so there's quite big differences um, in how Mimi is uh, treated, I guess, in the English and the Chinese version. Um, there's a disturbing scene where she's uh, violated. And I think in the Chinese version, I, I could be slightly wrong here. I think in the Chinese version, it's just rape. And in the English version, it's some weird technology. So they didn't remove the disturbing content. They came up with like a creative solution. And Chen Xiaofan, at least as far as he said, it thinks it's pretty good. He thinks it's an improvement. And I think some of that has been retro added to new Chinese editions. I think the Chinese edition has been informed by the translation. If Chen, uh, if Chofan was here, he could um, explain that more clearly. But I think that's the general gist of some differences that are really yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I do think the last time that both Angus and I heard Chen mm-hmm. Chofan talking, he sort of, uh, it sounded like he had come around to kind of agree with me that the whole, the like octopus um, apparatus rate thing is actually creepier than than just the direct version in the Chinese story. I don't know how much we want to talk about that. Mm. Um, but but yeah, it is really interesting the way that there's this circulation between the Chinese and the English, especially with him. Um, and the Chinese editions are reflecting some of the English edits that Ken Liu is is suggesting to him, and then he's bringing that back into his own mm. work. Yeah, yeah, I guess he's not just the Tor editor, but Ken Liu is a little bit of an editor himself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he has an open invite to come on and talk about Waste Tide anytime on Dickheads. Um, I know he's a dickhead, too. Yeah, mm. yeah, I'm aware. Yeah, yeah, I definitely would love to have him on there. I I, I love Waste Tide, and I'd love an excuse to read it again. Um, but uh, so getting back a little bit to Japan, we'll, we'll shift back into... Um, so I think the high watermark for... For me, the high water mark is waist tide for Chinese science fiction that I've read so far. Just me personally. Well, maybe Vagabonds might be better. I'm not sure it's my favorite, but is there a high water mark, uh, Nick or Tyron, that that you think is like if you're going to read one Japanese translation or one or two? Like, do you have a high water mark for for, for yourselves, whether it's manga or prose? Uh, I, I would I would defer to Nick on that one because I think um, Haikal Soto has, uh, you know, with with his guidance and amazing editorial acumen, really put out a, a very specially curated corpus of literature. And I would love to hear some of your favorites, Nick. I was going to say the same thing. We think about the tire. <laughs> I will I will mention a few books that I think were important that we did, and a couple mm-hmm. other things too. <clears throat> My personal favorites uh, were two books by Project Ito, mm-hmm. the now late author, uh, Genocidal Organ and Harmony, mm-hmm. and uh, perversely, we put them out in reverse order in, in the U.S. We put out Harmony first and then Genocidal Organ, so it reads like a prequel, but actually mm-hmm. Genocidal Organ was published first, it meant to be read first. It is basically about uh, how much Project Ito hates Noam Chomsky, <laughs> but it's also about uh, a dystopian future where, where child slaves are making clone dolphins and torturing them for their skin to make weapons for special forces soldiers. Like, it's every little satirical thing you could possibly imagine. And it's basically uh, about neuro-linguistic programming to create genocides. Then Harmony, all those problems are all over. It's been solved. Everyone is super healthy. Everyone is super great. And then someone there is to try to commit suicide. And uh, it is about a tyranny of universal health care. Ito was, was very oddly super skeptical and uh, a very unusually, very unusually for Japanese writers. 
and frankly, Japanese politics was almost like libertarian. I'm not a libertarian at all, but as a satire, these things are incredibly potent folks. So I like those two. Um, one I'd be very remiss not to mention, and Tyrant worked on some of these, is the 10-volume Legend of the Galactic Heroes series, which is a, an immense epic of, uh, it's essentially the Prussian Wars, the U.S. Wars in space with Napoleonic naval tactics. So if you're looking for how spaceships would work, they're not going to work like that. But uh, if you're looking for endless rhythm turns, dozens and dozens of characters, also an incredibly famous uh, manga and anime. Um, I've dropped me all 10 volumes of them, and I think you worked on four of them or five of them? Uh, three in full, others partially, yeah. Okay, yeah. And, oh, yeah, you do some uh, yeah. work when we realize one of our translators is like, oh, I'll have the book for your mark, but it's coming out in March. <laughs> <laughs> we had to get tired in there to subtract the whip on him. <laughs> and one other book I loved is Enjoto's self-reference engine, um, which is hard, gonzo, semi-Fildukian, semi-Lovetarian, uh, mathematical hard SF short fiction as a novel, which involves things like talking socks. Um, and then Joe was here, and he speaks this in English, and I remember interviewing him once at a, at a bookstore event, and said, we have to get this idea for talking socks, and actually also black hole tubes, and also Cthulhu. It's like, oh, it's a true story. <laughs> Response. <laughs> so you, have to, you have to check out Enjoto's self-reference engine. He's also been published uh, widely otherwise. He had a story in Granta, the very mm. famous story journal, and has been kicking around since then. So those are the, those are my uh, high points. Mm. Meaning they were, I had some personal affection for them beyond my personal affection for every book that I've done. Mm. But as far as manga, I mean, you have to read uh, Tichuan Adam, you have to read Astro Boy. Yeah. 50 years of it, you have to read uh, Sailor Moon. You know, it was incredibly uh, seminal. I mean, I'm mentioning things that you know children read, but these are things that are incredibly important. Uh, you know, to understand mm -hmm. Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and tyrant. How about you? What would you recommend? Yeah, I would say I don't know. I mean, I'm only just thinking about this now, but I think I might um, answer it differently depending on the category. So, one category I would place these choices in is things that I've read but haven't translated. Um, so in that category, I would probably place either the um, aforementioned Kambayashi novel, um, Under the Skin, or um, a novel by Sena Hideaki, the author of Parasite Eve, called Brain Valley, which is um, a duology about um, uh, kind of like artificial intelligence and neurotransmitters. It's um, pretty fascinating, but another sort of gargantuan hard sell, you know, in English, so I never really touched it. Um, uh, in terms of books that I have translated, my all-time favorite is um, uh, Mr. Turtle, which I mentioned before, which is about a um, cybernetic turtle who is trying to make it in a world of humans. Um, he's a, a blue-collar worker uh, at a factory who drives a forklift, but has these traumatic memories of having been deployed as an instrument of war um, and uh, is trying to deal with the, uh, I guess... Uh, militaristic purpose for which he was created, and then trying to uh, live a daily life uh, among his creators, um, and dealing with the fact that no no amount of computer erasure or digital erasure can actually disconnect him from those traumatic. Yes, there is. <laughs> um, and um, I've already and, written that one down. So yeah, and then um, uh, and then the other thing I would say is probably. Um, uh, fiction that I have um, uh, seen translated uh, by 
others, um, you know, which, which um, I, I sort of kind of place in its own category because I often uh, discover things, you know, um, uh, that way. Um, and uh, some of the stuff that, you know, Nick already mentioned is, you know, um, for, for firmly on that list, um, but especially Ito, I mean, the Project Ito stuff is, is quite brilliant. Um, and it was stuff that I wasn't even familiar with in Japanese. So, um, so it's been sort of a retroactive, you know, introduction to me. Um, so, yeah, I guess those would be sort of, sort of my top ones for now. Yeah, and I read a, a, a fair bit of, there's one guy, I can't remember his name, Ken something, he writes tons of Lovecraftian fiction in Japan. Atsabasa uh, Ken, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, for whatever reason, Kuridan has sent me tons of his work. So I've read, mm-hmm. like, and, and so I feel terrible not remembering his name, but mm. um, I those are really hit or miss. But when he's really on it, some of the Lovecraftian stuff is really great, um, mm-hmm. and some of the better Lovecraftian stuff that, that that I've read. And it's and I find it really interesting to think about how um, mythos and Lovecraft translates to the Japanese culture in particular, considering mm-hmm. what a racist dickbag um, uh, Howard was. But, um, you know, in that context, it's, I, I find it really funny. Uh, yeah, I translated one of his stories for those anthologies. And um, he's also very, very smart because I, I actually interviewed him for my dissertation for the section I did on Japanese horror. And he has a lot of uh, very arcane knowledge of the genre and its history, in both within and without Japan. And he's That, that very, leads you know, through the pages in his story. Yeah. yeah. Very, very obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel bad that I didn't remember his name because I literally have like five of <laughs> these. Um, but uh, so I want to talk about now there's a new, there's lots of subgenres in science fiction, you know, the cyberpunk, the, the this or that. Uh, one that I feel is emerging is the novels inspired by Le Guin's The Dispossessed because there's like literally probably half a dozen of those novels that are clearly influenced by the dispossessed. And one of those is Vagabonds by Hong Jingfang, which I think is, uh, and I hope I pronounced that correct. Um, probably not. Uh, but Vagabonds, I just read, it's the most recent Chinese science fiction that I've read. And so it's like on my mind a lot, but um, this book is a sprawling epic. And I think her role, because she's famous in China for not being a science fiction writer, correct? Um, and so she's more famous as like an education reformer. And I learned this when I was about 100 pages into the book. I was like, well, I want to learn more about her. And I looked up on YouTube to see if there were any inter- interviews, and they were all about like school reform in China. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was like, wow. And so what what I noticed is that as I was getting into it, that I was starting to have a little bit of the same knee-jerk reaction that people are having, and I was trying to correct myself. And I know, Angus, you dealt with this with your Ken Liu interview very well, um, how there's this kind of rush to assume that Vagabonds is saying Mars is China and Earth is America and want, and make this one-to-one comparison, but mm. it's a totally wrong reading of the book. Yeah, well, right away, as a European, I would say, don't conflate America and the West. <laughs> and that's just a starter. There's lots of other things that we must not conflate as well. Right. And um, for one thing, like, Mars has, like, a very tiny population in Vagabonds, so it would be impossible to compare Mars of 
of this novel to China. Um, but one of the things that's really interesting is that the author, um, she is an idealist. She's very much an idealist as far as Japan goes. And she's like a mom and she's a, a teacher and she, she wants to. And so I think in a lot of ways, this book, it's, it's very influenced by the dispossessed, but not at all the same point of view. Mm. Um, so what do you, you guys think about Vagabonds? Am I reading this wrong or, or like this book is, I thought was incredible. I don't think it's for everyone because you know, like it's for Kim Stanley Robinson readers, for example, because it's social science fiction, right? Um, what do you guys think about Vagabonds starting with Angus? Um, yeah, I think if, if you go in looking for any kind of one-on-one reading, whether it's the kind of default Westerner, uh, or any kind of other alternative one-to-one reading, you will be disappointed because it's very multifaceted and complex and it's deliberately very subtle. Like the book never erupts into a war. There's never very clear goodies and baddies. Um, I think maybe an interesting way I can talk about it is just based on the fact I have also read The Dispossessed, luckily enough. Um, and what I remember about The Dispossessed is that... Although Ursula K. Le Guin, I'll just call her Ursula Le Guin, um, although she clearly preferred her sort of anarchist um, or socialist, whatever you'd call it, um, idealistic vision of Mars, she, she, although she was careful to not make it absolutely perfect, you could cl- clearly see that she thought it was a better life, or at least a, yeah, a better life. It's the way people should be living. Whereas in um, Vagabonds, the impression I got is that um, Ha Jinfang wasn't very fully decided herself because there's some, although the um, the Mars that, that have been created by some people is probably a more moral place, it has some very, it's, she's very honest about the failings. Um, so I don't know if I could summarize it very, very simply for anyone who's not read the book. It's, um, it's like an, Thing is, I don't remember it that well myself. It's a while since I've read it, but it's a central. It's a it's a planned society, basically. It's a planned planned um, non economy. It's very like the thing that makes it not very communist is that it's driven by ideas and culture and in individual creativity to some extent. Um, whereas, like um, the ideal like communist China in the fifties and sixties was very not focused on pursuing your own philosophical ideas or creativity it was hyper-industrial um whereas this is the society in vagabonds that is mega focused on economic growth is is earth and I, i've i've i'm gonna need a minute to get my thoughts back together i've spiraled well, off in lots of different directions but i would say for me that i thought the the very where you saw her chinese perspective really coming through in the book is that she, the main character was trying to come to grips with the main character's um, grandfather was kind of like the leader of Mars. And she was like gra- grappling with, are you a dictator? Are you an authoritarian? Because you seem really great to me. But, um, and so it kind of had this, where mm. she was trying to parse out that question for herself. Like, I'm very happy with the way I'm personally living but are we, at least that's how it took to me. Nathaniel, have you read Vagabonds? I'm, I'm sad to say I haven't. I mean, but, you know, as far as reading things in terms of a national allegory, that's something we would always caution against. 
right? Um, and I think something you can see in Hao Jingfang's other writing or in Han Song's writing is that you can be critical of your country but still really love it, right? Um, so just mm-hmm. reading it really purely in that way is, is definitely problematic. And in Chinese, there's acceptable critical discourse and there's censored and go to jail critical discourse. But probably actually go to jail is an exaggeration. I think generally if you're writing something that the government doesn't want to see, your editor will stop you. And if your editor can't accept it, your book just won't be published. If, if things come to a head and your publisher publishes a book, then your book will be not good, you know, will not go to distribution and your publishing house might get shut or the publishing house that chose to help you out or, you know, be your partner will get shut down. So yeah, mm-hmm. so, but, but within, but within what is allowed to be published, there's plenty of stuff, which is not, you know, which is not following everything Xi Jinping says. Um, and nationalism is probably one axis where there is a spectrum of opinion because it's not, you know, nationalism is almost by definition not trying to bring down the country. So. Yeah, and as great as Vagabonds is, I think her short story, Folding Beijing, is one of the most incredible short stories I've read from either country as far as... It's, it's incredible. It's an incredible story, and it um, blew me away when I read it. And so that's why I was like, I'm going to read Vagabonds right away. And, and I definitely have... Um, uh, and I put a lot of energy into that my review of Vagabonds to not assume that I understood what Han Jifeng was saying entirely, but I, I think the conversation she's having with the dispossessed is is really interesting. And yeah. uh, so let's uh, uh, we've been talking for a while, and I don't want to take too much, especially Angus. It's late at night for you, um, and uh, but I just want to kind of go around and 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 say like. You know, where where do you want people to start if they're going to start seeking out um, English translations? And um, starting with Tyron, um, English translations from J- Japanese science fiction or manga, like where do you want us to start? And um, yeah, and then we'll just go around with that. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would totally um, agree with Nick about Astro Boy. Um, I mean, that's an amazing place to start if you sort of want to go chronologically. Um, I think um, also Legend of the Galactic Heroes, if, if one can stomach a 10-volume series, um, is, uh, is really classic in every sense of the word. Um, and it's also, um, uh, I mean, I'm not a huge hard sci-fi fan, but um, when it's good, it's good. And, uh, and I think Tanaka does such a, a brilliant job uh, in that entire series of making it Realistic, not only because it's grounded in history, but um, because it is grounded in, in uh, I don't know, I guess social complexity um, in, in a way that's very fun. Uh, but it also has a bit of you know enough unrealism to make it you know uh, uh, just a touch campy here and there to you know kind of give the reader some titillation uh, <laughs> uh, so that you're not you know bogged down by politics too much. Um, and um, but I also think that, you know, film is another thing that we didn't really mention. Uh, I mean, the, the 1954 Godzilla is, is, is a real masterpiece, I think, of, of contemporary Japanese science fiction narratives. I, I teach it in my courses all the time, whether it's a Japanese film course or this past semester, I just taught a pop, Japanese pop culture course. And that was like a touchstone you know, of the class because it ties together so many concerns, both at the national level, but also at the historical level, social level. Um, but but the literary level as well, um, because despite the you know questionable nature of its many spin-offs, 
um, it was a real touchstone um, for activating again those you know very explicit nuclear anxieties that were still resonating throughout the country in the wake of the war. Let's stick with Japan, Nick. Uh, where do you think people should start? You know, there's a weird paradox involved in recommending something. I remember uh, about a few months ago uh, when I was working at the bookstore, I uh, was talking to a customer. I said, do you want to read the best fantasy novel I've ever written? She thought, of course I do. So here you go. It's a little bit by John Crowley. And she bought the book and came back months later. No, oh, I read that book. That was the most amazing book I've ever read. Most amazing fantasy novel ever. Do you have anything else like it? I said, of course not. <laughs> Every recommendation I have from now wants to be worse because I gave you the best. So, so I ruined you for fantasy. So now I'm very, I'm very wary of, of recommending the best Japanese science fiction because you'll read it and then everything else will be, be shitty compared to it. So what I'd recommend, readers and podcast listeners out there in podcast land, is going to your local shelf at the local bookstore, inside a real physical bookstore, and seeing what is available and just picking what calls to you. Give yourself a chance. Be an aesthetic explorer. Because if you start off reading the best thing ever, everything else is going to be worse afterwards. And yeah. that's not a cop out. That's just me realizing that if I happen to hit on the best thing possible, then you'll be spoiled forever. Because reality is, if you read a lot of books, you read a lot of mediocre books that are kind of pretty good and kind of pretty good. But if you're dealing with a minority culture or a minority code inside of some kind of publishing, only the best come out. Mm. And that's when we only have the best, we don't have a lot. Mm. And I'd want people to sort of read broadly in Japanese science fiction or in any kind of science fiction or, or reading. So I would say, don't pick at random, but pick something that seems interesting to you. Mm-hmm. And just give it a whirl. Spend the 20 bucks and the two weeks or whatever it takes and just see how it goes. Angus. Hello. Um, I actually have a pre-made answer. Um, so recently, Paper Republic, who are an amazing uh, organization for kind of uh, li- organizing, listing, and popular- popularizing Chinese fiction and translation, or literature and translation, um, they got in touch with me looking for some little quick hundred word pieces of writing on some Chinese short stories I liked. And I chose all science fiction because I thought this is something I know that even some of the really big geniuses affiliated with Paper Republic might not. So I'll just uh, I'll adopt a slightly stilted tone and just read these out. Um, they're all short stories, uh, and which I think is important because although there's only a few novels well, there's lots of Liu Cixin novels you can get in English. Apart from that, just a few others like Waste Tide and Vagabonds. But there is a absolute boatload of translated Chinese sci-fi you can read in English uh, on print and online and often for free. So here we go. Uh, first of the three is What Has Passed Shall in Kinder Light Appear? And this is by Bao Shu, translated by Ken Liu. And you can read in Ken Liu's uh, Broken Stars anthology. Uh, Bao Shu is known for The Redemption of Time, his fanboy genius three-body extension. In The Redemption of Time, Bao Shu proved he can bend your mind like Leo, but in W-H-P-S-I-K-L-A, what has partial in kinder light appear, he sets out to go one better and break your heart. Early in the 20th century, history reverses. As our narrator grows from anxious prodigy to broken man, technology communications deteriorate, separating him from the childhood companion he primes for. At the macro level, Bao Shu executes his temporal conceit brilliantly, showing us a strange but familiar era of ruin and revolution that erodes but never quite eliminates the tender souls lost within it. Um, this one messed me up even more than um, the end of uh, Death's End did. It will make you cry. 
Uh, second one is a hand song story. Uh, it's called The Passengers and Creators, and someone sitting in this Zoom meeting room uh, translated it. It was Nathaniel. Uh, you can get this one in The Reincarnated Giant, which is um, a slightly less slickly published um, anthology of translated Chinese sci-fi, but there's some really interesting stuff there, and it's arguably more diverse than Ken Liu's anthologies for various different reasons. But also, I think the Chinese University of Hong Kong have this on their website. You can't find it by navigating through it, but if you Google search the story, you should be able to get the PDF that's up there. So you can slightly dubiously read this one online for free. I think I won't read the whole blurb because it took me too long to do that first one. But basically, it's a bit like the film Snowpiercer, on a plane and it was written long before Snowpiercer, I think. Um, so it's a really good um, sample of Han Song's, both his tendency for people to murder, eat, oppress, and sometimes shag each other uh, on public transport. And mm-hmm. it's very, this one actually, I know we said reading um, as national allegory is a no-no, but this one works in all sorts of interesting ways as a national allegory. So if you want to kind of, be a bit naughty and think about how is this story exactly in metaphor for modern China. I think you can be forgiven for doing that for this story. And the last one, this is one I think is really worth mentioning because not only is this a younger author like Bao Shu, who's in the generation after Liu Cixin, it's a woman. It's Tang Fei. And this one's also translated by Ken Liu and it's called Broken Stars. So it's, um, it's the story that Ken Liu's Broken Stars anthology was named after, funnily enough. And you can also read it uh, online at SQMag. Um, probably if you Google Google it, you'll find it. Um, and basically, this one is like, I'd say this is like a piece of weird fiction. It's very dark. And I think I will actually read you the blurb because I'm very pr- proud of this blurb. And it does a better job than me rambling would do. Um Ken Liu's sci-fi anthologies host one Tang Fei story each, Call Girl and Broken Stars. Among clear-cut genre fare, both are dark slipstream invaders, where the bait and switch of Call Girl reminded me of Jonathan Glazer's film Under the Skin. Funny that that title comes up again in our chat. The creeping psychosexual malaise of Broken Stars reminds me most of Robert Aikman's Strange Tales. Here and in Aikman, the reader day and or fever dreams a mundane life an unkind world and the threat of undefinable darkness breaking through. But rather than a mumbling, bumbling Aikman-esque protagonist, we follow something far more dangerous, an angry teenage girl. And yeah, I, I think this one, if I had to choose one story to set as a high watermark, I might choose this one, not because it's representative of really great Chinese sci-fi, but it's like an odd one out that is just absolutely not what you expect. And in some ways is maybe recognizably Chinese or East Asian. And in other ways, that's not even what you'll be thinking about when you're reading it. It's really something special. So yeah, short stories. Those three are good places to start. If you look on clarksworld.com, they've got loads of great um, Chinese sci-fi, although that's not all they do. All right, Nathaniel. Uh, Yeah, agreed. I would go to Clark's World. I think they have a really great diversity of authors and translators on there. So you get a lot Mm. of different voices and it's a great way to sample it and find out you know, what you do want to see more of, um, hopefully in print, if, if it's out there. Uh, the Reincarnated Giant Collection as well, I think, is a really good way to get. Um, that splits itself between the early 20th century and the 21st century. And so what little there is of stuff that's from, you know, turn of the 20th century uh, from Chinese science fiction that's available in English is in that book. 
Um, the other thing that I would go to, uh, and you're only going to be able to get a sample and not a lot of other stuff because no one ever did this, but Science Fiction from China, published by Wu Dingbo in 1989, has a bunch of those 1980s kind of pulpy stories um, running up uh, right up to the spiritual pollution campaign in 1983 that Angus was talking about. So if you want to get a feel for what happened between reform and opening up and then that whole thing getting shut down again, um, that gives you know a little bit more historical diversity in there, I think. It kind of helps round that out, hopefully. All right, that's awesome. All right, so we're going to close it out. So I want, um, starting with Tyron, just uh, let people know how uh, they can find your work and uh, if you want them to get in touch with you, how they can find you. Um, Start with Tyron. These days I I, um, uh, am doing more of the music criticism thing. So you can find me on ecmreviews.com if you're interested. I'm also on Twitter under my name. Um, if you just type my name in the Amazon, you'll find my translations. Cool. Uh, Angus, your podcast and you. Yeah, uh, send your hate mail to boris.johnson at gov.uk. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a serious note, yeah, the podcast um, it is hosted on Podbean. So we, to find all the links and show notes and episode art and whatnot, you go to uh, trichofic.podbean.com. Trichofic, so that's T-R-C-H-F-I-C, translated Chinese fiction, churchofic.podbean.com. If you just search for T-R-C-H-F-I-C, you'll find all the various places where you can find the podcast. um, Or you could just search for the translated Chinese fiction podcast. And that's that's me, really. I originally found you first on YouTube when I... Yes. For for stuff about Vagabonds. Yeah, I put... mm -hmm. Sorry, I I kept butting in there. Sorry. Yes, I put every episode on YouTube and Spotify, and all your different podcast providers. Um, so wherever you fancy. Um, I think you, I mainly put them on YouTube so people find it and then go find the main feed because um, YouTube has the nice funky thumbnails and stuff. Um, but if that's how you like to listen to podcasts, it works fine. Yeah. Yeah, I've I found that too. Mm. Um, Nathaniel? Uh, the most recent tranche of Han Song translations that I have came out in the Dark Fiction series published by Eric Guignard. I think that's dark fiction book number five, and uh, I'd love it if you read that. I'm not very good at tweeting, so you can email me at nkisaacs at ncsu.edu. If you want to read a book about Chinese science fiction, my book is on Amazon. It's really good. Um, And the title of that book is? Celestial Empire, The Emergence of Chinese Science Fiction. Uh, Yes, Um, that is a done deal. Um, <laughs> over here and uh, Nick uh, best way to find me is on Twitter and Mama Das which is N uh, M-A-M-A like Mama T-A-S T is in Thomas all the vowels are A's so to tell every telemarketer who's ever called me to get my name right <laughs> and I got a million things going on all the time for our Japanese SF um, I'd recommend the three anthologies we did of Hakusuru uh, the Future of Japanese, which was about science fiction, Phantasm Japan, which is fantasy, and Hanzai Japan, which is a fantastical crime fiction. Hanzai is just crime in, in Japanese. So if you're looking for a sampler, I'd recommend all three of those uh, anthologies. And you have a new book out this year, Sabbath, correct? I, I, had, I had four books out this year, mm-hmm. uh, even though I did almost nothing, because they're all reissues. So my first novel, Move Underground, which was a uh, beatnik Lovecraftian novel is back out in print. 
uh, Sabbath, which was a uh, novel I wrote to make sure my kid can, get, can afford college. Is that in paperback now? It's about a knight who chops off the heads of the seven deadly sins. That was a work for hire book. Um, I have an anthology, Wonder and Glory Forever, which was another Lovecraftian anthology based around the theme of the sublime and awe as opposed to dread. It has stories by Victor Laval, Molly Tanzer, Nadia Bolkin, uh, Laird Barron in it. So please check that out. And last week came the reissue of my novel Bullet Time, which is about um, oh, I love the universes wrapped up together. Uh, around the uh, axis of a school shooting. Mm. Yeah, it's great. Uh, that was actually your the first novel of yours I read. So, But uh, yeah, so everybody, thanks for coming. I hope everybody uh, checks out uh, the Asian Fiction and Translation as we end every podcast. Uh, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Mm-hmm.